0: Last Sunday, we finished up our time in the book of Hebrews, a great study through the book of Hebrews, and I trust that your hearts were encouraged and challenged as we considered Jesus Christ as our prophet, as our priest, as our king, as greater and more worthy than anything else. Um, and so we finished up Hebrews. Next Sunday, we're beginning just a short series on the Lord's Prayer. We're excited. Uh, just spend maybe six, ten weeks, something like that, um, looking at the Lord's prayer. So Adam will be introducing that um, next Sunday. So that left one Sunday where you can kind of just pick what you want. The Lord laid on my heart a while back, um, challenging me with my own spirit, my own heart, in the area of contentment. How easily I am discontented. How rarely I praise the Lord for his abundance and goodness in my life and how quickly I complain and moan and groan about what I feel is lacking or what I have that I wish I didn't have in my life. As he challenged me, I began in my own heart, my own soul, trying to work through some of these things, and you begin to hear an ear for it and listening, and quickly you learn it is a rut that many of us fall into quickly, is discontentment of groaning, moaning, murmuring, complaining, sometimes just out of habit more than out of reality. So this morning I want to challenge us in the area of contentment, challenge myself, challenge you all, especially as you think of Christmas time, discontentment can set in quickly from the smallest child who didn't get that toy that they wanted, that their older brother got and they really wanted to students who have the time off from school and it's just a lot more boring, not nearly as fun as they thought it was going to be, all the way to adults who are stressed out and burned out from being too busy, not being appreciated enough over the Christmas season, you name it, it goes on and on. New Year's can do the same thing. I'm a big resolution guy. I know some people are very against that. I, I like making New Year's resolutions, but often it can become a looking back on 2014 and all the things that you didn't have, you wished you had, and now 2015, all the things I want. And contentment can be, discontentment can begin to grow. And contentment is really just a theme that all of us need to hear about continually <laughs> in our hearts and our lives. This morning, we have a small crowd, so I'll treat, I want it to be a bit more interactive, all right, so don't leave me hanging here if I ask for some input, but also don't go too long. Um, So, I don't know, we'll have to strike a balance here. Um, Contentment, discontentment kind of grows out of ingratitude, selfishness, looking at yourself, looking at what you feel you need, you deserve, it grows out of pride, thinking that we are owed something, that we deserve something better than we have, or that we actually have a better idea of what we need than the Lord has an idea for us what we need, that we begin to grow in this discontentment and then discontentment breeds other sins, quickly follow after. What are some, think with me here for a minute, what are some, uh, what are some other sins, some other lacks, lack of discipline that grow out of a discontented spirit? If discontentment sets in, what is soon to follow? You can just shout out, what was it? Yeah, bitterness. It can quickly grow to bitterness. Coveting. Uh, Kind of the opposite of contentment, to covet, to want that which is not yours. Yeah, selfishness. You get focused on self, and it just becomes more and more and more about self. Isolation, absolutely. Anger, very good. was it? Oh, itching your head, come on. Don't move your hands, I'll call on you. A couple, you hit most of the ones I was thinking of. A couple other that I have is complaining and gossip. That quickly it grows into, it's hard to keep your discontentment to yourself, so it quickly grows into complaining to one another, and that becomes the theme of what we do. Often our discontentment hinges on somebody or something that we are quick then to gossip about and share our dissatisfaction with whoever it is or whatever it is that is stealing our joy that thing in our lives that's stealing our joy, that if that person or that thing would just get out of our way. I I think sometimes, I remember this, I worked at Starbucks for several years and uh, interacting with the other employees or, you know, even in churches, it can almost become like this conversations, almost become like a competition about who has it harder, (laughs) who has more to complain about, who is like this competition, instead of rejoicing in what we have, who we are in Christ, we become very quickly discontented. Finally, it can lead to idolatry. It seems like, wow, that's a big jump, discontentment to idolatry. Colossians 3 verse 5 Paul says that covetousness, which is opposite of contentment, covetousness is idolatry. He says, put to death what is earthly in you, immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. It's idolatry because the contentment that the heart should be getting from God, it starts to get from something else. It is Desiring something or desiring to be free from something more than desiring God. So this morning, we'll look at contentment. We're going to do it from a little bit of a different angle. We're going to do it from Romans chapter 8, the text that Dan read earlier. We'll look at contentment by looking to Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 8, as Paul comes to the end of Romans chapter 8, he's going to build a theology of this, of the purposed goodness and glory of God in the person and work of Christ in all things for you. Did you get that? It's mouthful. The purposed goodness and glory of God in the person and work of Christ Jesus in all things for you. Let's jump into it. We'll start in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All right, really familiar passage, right? What are some ways that that text there is misunderstood, misapplied? Surely you've heard it. It's on all kinds of sympathy cards, all kinds of everything. We know all things work together for good. What are some ways that you've heard that? misapplied or mishandled maybe what was it yeah the prosperity gospel as if god is just promising if you love me everything will be happy for you you'll be healthy wealthy and wise which if you read the context of romans 8 quickly rips that misinterpretation out the prosperity gospel is one Yeah, there's kind of sometimes a, a misinterpretation of this general quesera type of promise that, you know, hey, everyone, don't worry about it. You know, in the end, God will work it out. There's also sometimes a, a mishandling of it that, you know, life gets out of control. It gets a little out of control for God. Once all the chaos stops, then he'll figure out a way to spin it. and He'll put a good spin on it for your good. And you hear it sometimes misapplied in, in these different ways, there's a few different ways that it is different versions of the Bible. If you're reading from a different translation, it may say, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Another translation is, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. The ESV, which I just read, kind of follows the King James. All of them come up with this same idea of God working all things together for good. So the promise is this in verse 28 and point 1, the promise that God works all things together for good. This promise is for a particular people. As you look, it immediately qualifies it. And we know that for those who love God, for those who are called according to His purpose, it gives two qualifications. And I, I think a good suggestion of why is if it hinged alone on only one of those, That we know all things work together for good to those who love God. Here you have this massive, huge, great promise, a a blessing, a promise that all things are going to work together for your good. And if it were to rest alone on your love for God, what a flimsy, unstable foundation that would be. If you're anything like me, you're bursting with love and joy for God, and then other times... You can go a long time with hardly even feeling any sort of emotion or passion for God. We're so up and down in our love for God. And if we were to base such a huge promise on, on us and on us alone, what a flimsy foundation. And so he bases it on the purpose and the calling of God that this promise is according to God's very specific purpose and according to His calling. It is solid. It rests on the divine calling of God. It rests on the divine goodness. It rests on the sovereign, unchangeable, unthwarting purpose of God. All things work together for good. But I think even if if that were the only qualification... And he didn't include both of them, those who are called according to purpose and those who love God. Then you're left with kind of this, uh, maybe a bit of a stale feeling, but there is that real emotional, relational aspect to it. We know it's grounded in he loved us. We love him because he first loved us. And so there is this promise that all things work together for good. And it is a promise that is for a very specific people. And we see that the promise is according to purpose. It's not just an empty promise here. It is according to purpose. Let's continue reading from 28 down through verse 30. It says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And then he goes on to lay out that purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. There you have that sort of chain of salvation, those linked together. And you see that those who are called according to purpose, all that God had to accomplish in Jesus Christ in order to make this promise secure, to make this promise real and unshakable. It was a calling, and a calling according to a very specific purpose, ultimately your glorification, you see, all that God accomplished in order to make this promise to you, it's not just an empty get well soon card type of promise. It is a calling that secures your justification to be right in the eyes of God. You know what it took to secure your justification? It took the birth, it took the absolute obedience, it took the suffering, it took the death, it took the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So when he promises all things work together for good, it's not just, hey, we'll spin it for you. It is, look what God has accomplished to secure this promise for you. And the promise is unshakable because those whom he called, he will glorify. He's not going to lose you. And that's why to base it alone on your love for God, it's so up and down and we are so carried away by the things of this world. But the promise is this, that those whom God calls, He will produce a love in you for God and it is a love that will last forever. And then we see the purpose a little more specifically in this chain of salvation It says in verse 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also be predestined. And what was that purpose for which he predestined? To be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So there's two real specific purposes here. One is our conformity to Christ that he is changing us into the image of his son, our conformity to the person of Christ, that we would grow in humility, that we would grow in obedience, that we would grow in holiness in the image of Christ. So all things that he is working together for good, you see all that it took him to accomplish it, all that lays is the foundation for that promise. And you see, there is a very specific purpose It's not just sort of some, you know, good that you imagine. Here is the good, that you become like Jesus. He's working all things for that purposed, specific end. Secondly, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That has the idea there of preeminence. He's working all things for you to become like Jesus and for Jesus Christ to be exalted. In the midst of his body, in the midst of the church, that much would be made of Jesus. And as you are trained in holiness, as the Spirit works in you, as the Word lays hold of you, as by the means of grace you grow in godliness, becoming more like Christ, Jesus Christ is exalted. It's not like we're raising now, hey, look at us, we're the cream of the crop. We're really getting holy over here. We got a lot of faith. Good for us. No, it's as we grow in Christ's likeness, much is made of Jesus Christ. So all things work together for good. It's a promise that's not just empty and easily thrown out. And all things work together for a very specific end. The good that he talks about is very specific. It is your conformity to Christ and Christ's exaltation in the church. And now, verse 32 is going to pop up all things again. So, our second point the promise that God gives all things with the Son. God gives all things with the Son. Before we move on to the next point, pause. How does this relate to contentment? All right, what are we dissatisfied in? What are we discontented in? What are we so quick to complain about? When we think, okay, let's take a step back. God promises he is working all things for good. With a very specific purpose in mind, to make us like Christ. And to exalt Christ in the midst of his people. Most of the time, our discontentment comes because we're more interested in something else than this end of becoming like Christ in the exaltation of Christ. We're interested in something that we feel is necessary for our happiness. Or the removal of something that we feel is standing in the way of our happiness. is standing in the way of what we see to be the good. But here is the good end. To be like Christ and for Christ to be exalted. So not only is he working all things, now we see that he is giving us all things with the Son. So again we see God's sovereign purpose here. So in verse 31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He's kind of raising a question here that after what we've just read hopefully the answer you know a rhetorical type question hopefully the answer is ringing loud and clear in your mind if God is for us who can be against us to say that God is for us is another way of restating that order of salvation how is God for us God is for us because he foreknew us in love he predestined us to sonship he called us from death He declares us righteous. He is working in us from one degree of glory to another until the great and glad day of Christ. He secures us forever. How shall we say that? How can we re-say that? God is for us. What a huge, beautiful promise. For those who are in Christ, God stands for you. Can you think of anything worse than to hear that God stands against you? You remember in Hebrews, I believe it's Hebrews chapter 10, as we came to the end of the passage there, it talks about it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. gospel presentation is full of grace and hope, but there is wrath also in the gospel presentation. We do it a great disservice and justice when we want to curb it and present it to people as, well, God is love, and so, you know, he's going to work everything out, and we just sort of soften the blow. The truth of reality is, is that God is either for you or against you. And our gospel invitation is, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You confess with your mouth, believe your heart. Please, there is hope. There is rescue in God through Jesus Christ. But there is a narrow and specific way, and it is through Jesus Christ. He either stands for us or he stands against us. And here is the promise that God is for us. So what does it lead? If God is for us, then who can be against us? And the answer is nobody. And to that, you respond, really? (laughs) Take a week in my shoes. No one is against me? Okay, my boss never recognized my work. He's a jerk. He's mean to me. My family is super unappreciative and judgmental of me. Uh, Taxes come in if you know. Has anyone had to deal with healthcare.gov? You think no one is against you? (laughs) finally have the courage to share the gospel with someone you approach them with the gospel and they turn you down quickly friends think you're weirdos there are people that stand against us so what does he mean if god is for us no one is against us it doesn't mean if god's for you then life is easy and everyone's going to be your friend and healthcare.gov is going to work out perfectly for you No. It means ultimately that no one will successfully stand against you. That no one will thwart the end for what God is accomplishing good in your life. If God is for you, when you remember again all that was accomplished, that we just looked at, in order for God to stand for you, nothing can stand against that. God's purpose will not be thwarted. If God is for us, no one can stand against us what if that really gripped our lives no one can successfully stand against us so much so many of the decisions that americans people in general make is based on i don't know fear of safety fear of losing financial security Fear of being judged by others. I mean, some things are common sense. I'm not telling you to put yourself in really bad situations for no reason. But if we really believed, if God is for us, no one can successfully stand against us. Nothing is going to stand against us and stop God's purpose for us. How that would change the way we live, the decisions we would make. and How would it affect are discontented or contented spirits. So quickly discouraged, so quickly moved to complaining. Yet we think of all that God has accomplished in order that he can say God is for us, and then the promise from that is nothing can stand against us. And we know that he is accomplishing in us Christ-likeness in the exaltation of Christ. Man, should that rain back the discontented, complaining spirit the victim attitude that we can all take on sometimes. God has accomplished all of this for us in order to stand for us. And then in verse 32, it says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You've probably heard this mentioned before in different areas, but the argument here is from greater to lesser. What's the great promise? What is the great gift in this passage? Christ. So what is the lesser, easy gift? Everything. (laughs) Here's the great promise. He's given you the Son. He has given you Jesus Christ. And look how he says it. He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all. He who did not spare his own son. You know what it's talking about? He did not spare his son the humility of coming to earth as a servant. Born into this really tricky situation where most people thought there was some infidelity, some adultery taking place. And here's Jesus. And to grow up obediently, facing temptation... Facing the assault of Satan. Facing the mocking and the doubt and the persecution. And then to suffer as he did. To take the whip, to take the lashes, to take the crown of thorns. You realize this isn't just like a story. This is the reality of Jesus Christ's life. To have thorns pierced into his skull. To be whipped and to be beaten further than any man has, as the scripture would tell us. To have his beard, we have a three-month-old, and every once in a while I will get just a little piece and pull, and that's painful. To have your beard ripped right out. Have people spit on your face. To carry your own cross, only to have spikes driven through your feet and your hands, you to be hung on it Naked. It says that God spared nothing. He did not spare his own son from that. Because that's what it took to secure the promise that God stands for you, to secure the promise that everything is going to work for your good. It meant that he had, could not spare his son any of that. All the ways he hung on the cross, took the spear in the side, and died a humiliating, torturous death. God gave him up. As Isaiah would say, it pleased the father to bruise the son. He's not just some sadistic father. This is what had to happen in order for God to stand for you. That is the great gift And so with Jesus Christ, what is promised? All the everything easy, which is everything. Listen to these words of John Flavel, an old preacher from about 300, 400 years ago. says, he spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not... With him freely give us all things. How is it imaginable that God should withhold after this spiritual or temporal blessings from his people? How shall he not call them effectually, justify them freely, sanctify them thoroughly, and glorify them eternally? How shall he not clothe them, feed them, protect them, and deliver them? Surely if he would not spare his own son one stroke, one tear, one groan, one sigh, one circumstance of misery, it can never be imagined that he should, after this, deny or withhold his people for whose sake all of this was suffered, any mercy, comfort, privilege, spiritual or temporal, which is good for them. Again, remembering good has been defined. Is transforming us into the image of Jesus Christ, exalting Christ in order that we might enjoy Him forever. God already gave the great gift, he already did the hard thing. Everything else is promised with it. So when someone asks you what you got for Christmas, you can say, everything. <laughs> I got everything for Christmas. Because with the Christ, all things are promised. Everything necessary to accomplish his purpose and plan in you. And so again, we look at the spirit of discontentment. And what are we saying when we're so discontented with our lives? When we get so hung up on a specific idea, item or a relationship or something in our lives that starts to steal our joy and to steal our rejoicing in God. Our hope is so bound up in that that we become hopeless in our discontentment. We are forgetting the great gift of Jesus Christ and that with Jesus Christ, everything that went into Jesus Christ, securing and accomplishing our promise. God is giving in our lives, God is giving us everything we need, and then he is working all of that to accomplish his good. So our discontentment really is representative that we don't like his plan, or we're not interested in the same ends he's interested in for us. I know we wouldn't actually say that. I wouldn't actually say that when I'm murmuring and complaining. But in reality, I have got a better plan for myself. I have a different end and a different way of getting there. God has accomplished and secured for us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. As Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The final all things here, the final promise is in verse 37. You see, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We'll develop it around there. So here's the third promise, the promise that we are more than conquerors in all things through Christ. So God has given us, or God is working all things God has given us all things with Jesus Christ, and now through Jesus Christ, we are more than a conqueror in all things. And that's why we say he's developing a theology of the purpose, goodness, and glory of God in the person of Christ Jesus in all things for you. Three points under that... This last one, the promise that we are more than conquerors in all things through Christ. Number one, we are more than conquerors because with the Son, God alone justifies and God alone condemns. I'm thankful for that. Look at verse 33. Well I'll start in verse 32. He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. We are more than conquerors in all things because it is only God who can justify and condemn. It is only because of the person and work of Jesus Christ that we are counted just and therefore, the promise of Romans 8, how does it start in Romans 8.1? Can anyone remember how the chapter starts? Yeah. There is therefore now no condemnation. Depending what translation you have, there might be less words, but no condemnation. That's how it starts for those who are in Christ Jesus. God stands for you. No condemnation. That means that God will never, as your God, turn his back on you. He always stands for you. You know why he never turns his back on you. Because for that moment as Christ hung on the cross screaming, Why have you forsaken me? He turned his back on, God turned his back on the Son. He forsook the Son, in order that he might never forsake you. In order that he might stand for you always. We are more than conquerors because God alone Who justifies and God alone who condemns because of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Secondly, we are more than conquerors because with the Son even hard things are given by God and worked by God for our good. All right, included in the all things are really hard things. (laughs) Look at the context here, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Here's where our minds don't necessarily easily start grasping the biblical perspective. But all things that work together for good include famine and nakedness and distress and persecution. and That God has sovereignly purposed those things in your life for His glory and for your good. And again, your good isn't necessarily an easy, carefree, painless life. Your good is to be changed into the image of Jesus and for Jesus to be exalted. And that can and definitely will include some hard things. Might include famine, nakedness, persecution, distress. You go on and on. All things, temporal, spiritual, things that we recognize as immediate blessings, things that are really hard, that take years to understand how it could be for our good. These are all gifts of God for you, purchased by Jesus Christ on the cross. That's why we can be a Christ-centered, cross-centered people in all things. So that when you come in, you just got a job promotion, and I'm like, oh, congratulations, that's awesome. I'm boasting in Christ, because that was purchased for you on the cross. With the Son, that was secured for you. When you come in and a relationship is falling apart and there is sickness and there is heavy, heavy hearts and grief and gut-wrenching things are happening and I can sit beside you and pray with you and weep with you and hug you, that is boasting in Jesus Christ. Because with the Son that was purchased in order for you to be changed into the image of Christ and to become like Christ, and for Christ to be exalted. So you realize you can't separate the gospel from your life, every aspect of your life when it comes to contentment. You can't compartmentalize, like, I'm thankful Jesus died for me, but I'm really unthankful for all these things happening in my life. I'm very discontent over here. It was with Jesus Christ that all of these things are secured in order to make you like Christ and to exalt him. You can't separate every aspect of your life from the gospel. You have to see them together in order to have a contented spirit. Sometimes the hard things we'll never know in this life exactly how God is using them for His glory and our good. I'm not going to pretend. I don't mean to stand up here and act like, you know, you shouldn't worry about them. It's not really hard. They are hard. They're gut-wrenching and confusing. I'll pray with you that circumstances change. We're not saying you have to love every hard thing in life. We're saying you can't ever pray for God to change a circumstance in your life, but there's a difference between being discontented with how God is working and what He is accomplishing in your heart, compared to praying that something changes in your life. That makes sense. You see that difference there? It can be confusing for some people. I've had people talk to me about that. Well, then, should I pray that I feel better if God is using it? And Yeah. But the end of our prayer is, thy will be done. That Christ, God's name would be hallowed, that we would be changed in the name of Christ, that Christ would be exalted. You see it in the life of Joseph, how hard things are worked for good. I mean, Joseph's life is a story of, Hard knocks, hard lock, time after time. After, again, he's sold into slavery. And then he starts to do well under his new master. And then his master's wife falsely accuses him of rape. And he's thrown in prison. And he makes a friend and helps someone out in prison. And they promise that they'll give a good word for him to get him out. And then they forget about it. And 20 years later, he interprets a dream. And then you see how God uses it, how God planned those things. Genesis 45, 7 Joseph's own testament, testimony, God sent me before you, speaking to his brothers, to preserve you, to preserve for you a remnant on earth, to keep alive for you many survivors. You remember he was promoted the second in the land of Egypt, Joseph was. After 20 years of suffering in prison and false accusations and being sold into slavery, God moves and promotes him to this position because of Joseph's... Uh, foresight and the grace of God in his life, he is able to prepare the nation for this famine that's coming, and He is able to preserve his family. The Psalms talk about it. Psalm 105 says, When he summoned a famine on the land and broke all the supplies of bread, he sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. Genesis 50:20. Joseph says to his brothers, As for you, you meant, it, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Terrible, hard, difficult, confusing things that God uses for good in your life and the lives of others. Finally, the third point here. We are more than conquerors because with the Son, the love of God secures us eternally. Remember, those who are called according to his purpose, the end of that chain is they will be glorified. Verse 37, Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. More than a conqueror, that doesn't mean you're going to barely slide through it. That doesn't mean that eventually everything will get back to just how it was before. No, you will be an overwhelming conqueror. And those obstacles and those difficult things that come up in your life, God will make you an overwhelming conqueror in them. He will use them to transform you into the image of Christ and to exalt Christ in your life in order that ultimately you will be glorified. That is, that you will be able to enjoy Him forever. So application then. Hopefully you've seen the application all the way through. Number one, obviously, is that we remember the greatest gift. And that's Jesus Christ. We think of contentment that our eyes don't stray from Christ, that we are richly and thoroughly blessed because of the greatest gift, Jesus Christ. Secondly, that we recognize all other gifts are given with the Son, both the blessings and the difficulties of life. And that we would be much slower to start murmuring and complaining and to grow envious in our hearts, to let bitterness spring up, to let gossip start coming out because we feel like we don't have it like we should, that something's standing in the way of our happiness, that something we have just needs to be removed in order for us to be happy. You know what that is. I mean, relationships, health, money, whatever it is, but recognize all that Jesus all that God did in Christ in order to secure the promise that all things will work together for good and then realize it was because he spared Jesus Christ nothing that he won't that he also now spares no good gift that we need in order for his purpose to be accomplished in us no matter how rich the blessing or difficult the trial seems God doesn't just, you know, eke us through it. We are overwhelming conquerors in it. And that probably isn't going to look to the world like overwhelming conquerors. As oh, whoa, look at me. But an overwhelming conqueror in the sense that in the end, we are more like Christ. He is exalted. The promise is fulfilled that we will enjoy him forever not just for a moment of carefree happiness. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its rich promises. We thank you for its warnings. Lord, I pray that you will help each of us in the area of contentment, not just to yell at people to be content but indeed to look to Jesus Christ, to understand how richly blessed we are in Him, and then to understand that those things in our life that we can start to despise, or that God is working all things in our lives to make us more like Christ, to exalt Christ. That is the good for which He is working. They were purchased with the Son. Lord, as we begin to recognize that and rejoice in it, that we would learn to then shape our prayers and shape our conversations and shape our desires around God's good being done in our lives. So as we pray for healed relationships, as we pray for healed health, as we pray for stable finances, whatever it might be, that our ultimate prayer and concern is that God be glorified that he would work in our hearts and the lives of others for our good. He would make us an overwhelming conqueror so that we don't enjoy just a carefree moment, that we don't just enjoy the spotlight or success or something that lasts a couple weeks, but instead we can enjoy Christ forever. Lord, we are richly blessed. Help our contentment to rest in that, that we are promised richness and wealth in Christ forever not absence of pain and heartache now Lord you are great you are worthy to be praised we join now praising you we stand as we join together